Blog Talk Radio. Tolkien Movies is brought to you by Peter Jackson. Tonight we will be discussing the Hobbit trilogy. I just got finished watching the extended editions, and boy, oh boy, do I have something to say about that, plus the documentary included in the Battle of the Five Armies Blu-ray, which goes into a lot of what caused that movie to be what it was and why it exists in the first place, as opposed to the uh, two-set for the Hobbit that was originally planned. Of course, joining me tonight are my uh, co-hosts. First, you know him, you love him. This is Sean Comer. How do you do, Sean? I'm Sean. You're not as long as the definitive, spiteful, and bitchy And of course, joining us as a special guest tonight uh, because he is uh, a big fan of the Tolkien and uh, likes to. Uh, give us some input on what he thinks about some of the battle scenes and whatnot. Uh, our good friend and uh, friend of the show, Mr. Andrew Graham. How you doing, sir? What are you guys? How are you doing? What are you guys? How are you doing? I'm doing great. No complaints. Sean? Fuck you, Block Talk Radio. Fuck you, Of course you wrote it on. Of course you wrote it on. Ditto. We got an echo thing going on over there. Um, I had no echo on my side that I'm aware of. I have a whining uh, child in the background. Maybe that's what you hear. Uh, a child who should have gone to bed an hour ago. <clears throat> no, Anything. no, no. Those are distinctly my dolphin songs that I hear reverberating back at me. For those of you who joined us uh, two weeks ago when we talked about Lord of the Rings, it's showing... As Sean uh, pointed out, we were just starting to get into our discussion of the return of the king, and Blog Talk Radio used to give us an hour overrun, gave us about 10 minutes, which we didn't know was happening, and then unceremoniously cut the discussion. So we are going to give the return of the king its due. I've kind of had my say on it, just to revisit uh, and, and, and link these two things up. My... I, I will defend to the death the multiple endings, and if it comes up tonight, we can have that discussion. I thought the Ghost Army was a bit of a cheat in the narrative, but 
maybe I stand alone on that. You know, you know, as the question was brought to me, how else were they going to win against you know the, the kinds of odds that they were facing? Okay, sure. <clears throat> Other than that, you get some of the. This is the most ninja Legolas gets <laughs> in, in in the trilogy. Um, it gets a little crazy after a while, especially in the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Um, a little, almost distractingly so, but it's still fun. And, you know, compared to what we'll see in The Hobbit, especially uh, during the, the barrel ride scene, boy, it's, it, it, it's, you know, it, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi versus Darth Vader by comparison. Um, but that was it. I absolutely love Return of the King. Um, I cry like a woman every time I, Aragorn says to the hobbits, you bow before nobody. And really that whole sequence of endings, I'm just, I'm just a crying mess. So I'm going to go ahead and take a back seat because that's really all I had to say about it. But I know Sean and Andrew, uh, got gypped <laughs> because of blog talk radio. So I'm going to hand it over to Sean first. Who I know is sort of bursting at the seams here. Sean, what were some of the things you wanted to discuss with regards to the return of the king. You know, you made a great point off air. We really might as well just play Hobbit on this, extend this from two shows into three, just so we can give this movie a damn do. Um, as opposed to kind of reducing it to an afterthought of this one. Uh, but here goes, as, as best as I can sum sum this up, because God knows we don't want to push our luck with the overrun one more time. Um, really, it, it's one of the most satisfying ends to a trilogy that I've ever seen. I would dare say that it far and away surpasses even uh, Return of the Jedi in terms of ways to just kind of put a nice pin in everything. It's it's kind of the perfect punctuation at the end of the whole thing. Uh, the big controversy for a lot of people is the fact that of all the things they could have cut out of the theatrical cut, they removed <clears throat> the um, the denouement for uh, Saruman, uh, Christopher Lee, just entirely from the movie. Uh, I remember even Lee himself was more than a bit insulted and salty about that, which I understand. He's one of the most uh, the most understated yet satisfying parts of the entire trilogy. This is a guy that when Peter Jackson was directing him in his ultimate scene in Return of the King and told him, I told him, I want you to imagine what it would be like to be stabbed by somebody from behind. He looked at him and just matter-of-factly told him, I don't have to imagine. It happened to him. Um, but on the other hand, I get it. I get that you had to take something out to keep it down, to keep an already extensive, challenging marathon of a movie down to something that would be palatable for theatrical audiences, and that just happened to be the darling that was most easily able to be cut without necessarily sacrificing anything explicitly crucial. On the other hand, I also think that both New Line and Peter Jackson had realized just 
what just how phenomenally well received the extended editions had been on the home video market and realize people are arguably going to love this home extended cut with him in it even more than they love the theatrical version in the end. So ultimately, he was probably thinking, well, it's effectively going to come, going to come out in the wash because the, the people who are kind of the most devoted to the, to the series, the most fanatical about it, are going to get to see it in what is pretty much considered to be the, the quintessential format, the quintessential edit of the movies. Um, as to the extent, as to the several endings, look, anybody who's complaining about them, it's what you have to do to bring every single thread to a satisfying conclusion that does justice to the source material. And every single, every single one, every single closing moment with all of these characters is rendered so beautifully, so satisfying, so so wrenchingly that, to be honest, I would have been okay if there would have never been one Hobbit, let alone three, because I feel that that was the ideal way to go out uh, for for every single one of the performers and every single one of the characters. This was Michael Jordan raining down that perfect, nothing but bottom of the net jump shot against the Utah Jazz in his final game ever in the Chicago Bulls form. Uh, this was John Elway going out with one more Super Bowl win. You just, you just sometimes can't top perfection. You can't do it. And in this case, it was absolute, utter uh, perfection. It's, it's, it sounds redundant, but I just have no other real phrase for what a touching, ideal apogee this is and how it's one of the very few franchises that, at the time, was going out on top, that went out without a single sour note to its name. So many other times, that last one is just kind of the the dull-witted child of the family. Um, you could name movies from The Dark Knight Rises to The Matrix Revolutions to the last two Alien movies, just any of them, that just didn't know how to really wrap things up in a proper fashion that kind of left people going, okay, I can walk away from this in peace. Return of the King did that on absolutely every level. And then came The Hobbit. Also known as the Washington Wizard years? You know what? (laughs) Perfect. Yes, thank you. Thank you very, very much, Andrew. Yes, that's a perfect comparison. It's the Washington Wizard you. Or, um, you know what? You and I are both hockey fans. You know how else I would look about it? Wayne Gretzky suited up for the remainder. Yeah, fair um, enough. Yeah, yeah. The, the guy had great runs with the Edmonton Oilers, um, the L.A. Kings, to a much lesser extent, the fucking St. Louis Blues. 
Uh, any of you out there who know me know that I, I hate no team in any sport quite like I hate a St. Louis team. Um, but his, his brief tenure with, with the Rangers, cool as it was to see him skating alongside Mark Messier, it just felt anticlimactic. It just there was something about it just kind of just it kind of felt off. Like you wish that he could have gone out when he could still really play at something close to his best like he did in St. Louis. Um, the Hobbit had all the potential for me, and I'll, but I'll just say it right now. It really had none of the emotion in the, char- in the character development. Um, it, it didn't grit me nearly like the three Lord of the Rings movies did. I thought that I thought that it was awkward. I thought it was ambitious in places, but really failed miserably. I don't think it holds together as cohesively, narratively, even for as satisfying as it is visually as the other three movies did. It was just a letdown in every sense for everybody who was really pumped up to see what has kind of always been considered uh, not Peter Jackson. I almost said Peter Jackson's word. Uh, the the JR the essential the JRR Tolkien work that even supersedes the Lord of the Rings. I mean, obviously, it came first, but I I always feel like when you talk to people, it's regarded more highly in quality than those three novels. And sadly, tragically, because of a lot of bad decisions along the way. It was just a disjointed, a disjointed, poor flowing, just flat feeling, kind of a mess. And that's uh, that, that's it. God knows I've already eaten up enough of our precious time, and you know we never know how much we really have. So, I, okay. I, as much as I would, uh, I you really set up talking about the Hobbit rather nicely, and. Uh, and I would love to go with that sort of a smooth transition, but I can't because I now need to talk about that Saruman theme and uh, give Andrew sort of an opportunity to weigh in here before we move on. And we do need to get going with The Hobbit, but I, but I can't let this go. So to hell with Blog Talk Radio, i, I got to bring this up. Um, see, I always felt that cutting the Saruman... I, I remember when I saw the theatrical version the first time of Return of the King, and they get to uh, the tower... And I'm like, I don't understand what happens here. They, they just get there, and they and they sort of they it's fast forward to Pippin playing with the Palantine, and we're off to you know, we're off to Gondor and uh, and Rohan again. And I'm like, what the fuck just happened? What happened? Is, you have no clue what happens to Saruman because they don't address it. And I feel like of all the things that they left in to Return of the King, I mean the other stuff that they cut, you know, the stuff with. Um, uh, Faramir and, and what's her face from uh, Rohan. That's fine. I'm, I'm fine with them cutting that stuff. Um, I would have shaved off some of the Battle of Pelennor Fields just to keep it. And I understand your point was, oh well, it's a nice little jewel that you get to get with, with the with the extended editions. You know, kind of like a bonus track. But to me, it was you know, you use the word crucial, and to have a character just suddenly disappear. To me, that is a crucial element of the narrative that they tossed out the window 
and said, no, we'll we'll get to it later. And again, you're watching this for the very first time in the theater going, what happened to this particular villain? He just up and disappears. Go ahead, Andrew. Why don't you sort of weigh in here between me and Sean, and and if there's anything else left to be said, let's get it done, and then we'll uh, keep it moving. Um... Well, I think we're going to start agreeing a lot right now because I think uh, I think Sean's comments there pretty much sum up a lot of my feelings about um, the entire Return of the King. I mean, it is kind of the the blue it's it's the new gold standard as to how you hold a movie trilogy to its ending because it's perfect. Like there really isn't a lot in that movie to complain about. Um, Marcus, to your point about uh, about you know the the Saruman scene. Uh, I'm in 100% agreement. I think they probably could have kept that one. Um, there's, I mean, you know, it is, you're ending the arcs of a couple of different characters. You're, you're kind of continuing the arcs of a couple of others of kind of going back to, going back to some of Theoden's insecurities and, and obviously setting up things with, with, um, Pippin and how he gets the Palantir and, and his journey throughout the movie. And I think it's a valuable scene they probably should have hung on to. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, I will address one thing regarding the multiple endings. I was actually one of those people who, uh, who watched the, the movie in theaters. And when they did the, did the first fade after the coronation, I'm like, oh, that's it. And then they came back, yay, more movie. And I did that the next three times as that happened. And I think, honestly, that, that sequence is a bit, a bit of a victim of editing. I mean, if they had, if they had chosen something different from going to the, like the, the black fade-outs or the white fade-outs, and done something more gradual or, or with a little bit shorter time in between those, then I think that would have been received a little bit better. My you know, thought, I, 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 I do myself slightly on just, uh, on just this one thing. There is, I think, one, or rather I should say two movies that really uh, kind of roughly maybe it, it kind of come close to matching Return of the King for quality in terms of how to really close out a franchise. And those would be uh, both parts of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I've never actually That's seen the, all of the Harry Potter movies. So, what, One thing I wanted to add to this real quick. I, I was thinking a lot because I, because I agree with you. They probably could have got – if you're sitting here and you're saying, okay, we have to have the most of the lendings, but we got to get there a little bit quicker. You know, we got to get the kids to the mall – as I say, um, I think one way they could have done it was there's a little bit of narrative and maybe have that narrative expand the whole thing. Instead of, instead of uh, fading out, just have Bilbo's na- uh, na- uh, narration about, you know, how do you pick up the strands of your life after an event that they've, that they've gone through? Have that stretch through the whole thing and just keep cutting. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, go right from... Um, them sitting in the bar to him, you know, being with the girl, the Sean Ashton being with the girl, uh, to the wedding, to go right into then um, Bilbo and Frodo getting onto the ship, and then you know, and then cut right to um, what's his like? I'm losing the character name now. Sean Sam, uh, and then have Sam, you know, do it, and then let the narration sort of hold that whole thing together. It doesn't seem like you're faking out the audience as much. The con- I think people's issue with it, and, and I, this is a good enough ending point here, um, if they're in a serious disagreement, uh, is that 
you kept fading out as if the movie was over. And it starts before that. It starts with uh, them sitting atop of a, of, a, of a dry space in Mordor as the lava uh, comes around them. Yeah. And they, they fade out. And then they fade back in the eagle. Why did we need the fade out there? <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's get going here. The, the, once they sat there and he's talking about, you know, I would have gone with this girl and there was, I have so many regrets now that I'm going to fix if we ever get out of this. <clears throat> Cut to the fucking eagle, man. Let's get to the eagle. Why are we wasting time with a fade out there? So, um, <clears throat> you know, again, and fading, the only one I would have kept maybe was the one after the coronation. Excuse me. But like I said, if you're really pressed for time and you're like, let's not keep faking the audience out, narration, quick cuts, and you're there a lot faster than having to constant fade outs. Uh, Andrew, any thoughts there? If not, we're moving on. Yeah, pretty much my thoughts. Um, I would say at this point, uh, mash and boil and stick them in the stew. All righty. I want to pick up on the threat that Sean put out there. Um, Sean talked about correct me if I'm wrong, because it was only a few minutes ago, Sean, that people were disappointed with the Hobbit trilogy, didn't quite live up to what people's expectations were. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, as far and away, fell short okay. of expectations. I mean, they, they, were, they were still receiving well. They were, we're not talking like Fantastic Four, Ghost Rider levels of being handy. <laughs> Um, or, or Matrix sequels in terms of if we're just talking about follow-ups to otherwise successful movies. But uh, no, I, the vast majority of people that are real uh, serious Hobbit and Lord of the Rings fanatics that I knew came away from from all three feeling decidedly let down. Okay, let me. That's a great place to start talking about this because um, I want to say two things. One. I actually wasn't disappointed with The Hobbit. I, I really enjoyed the movies. I enjoyed the extended editions a lot more, like almost 100% more. The, the, the stuff they cut out of these movies is actually so good, I thought it made the whole trilogy even better. Um, number one. Number two, the story of how these movies got made or almost didn't get made or changed from two to three movies is almost better than the actual story. Okay? I've been, uh, I've been really digging into these documentaries, and there was a... There was a, a short part of it that was put on, that almost fakes you out in a way. Let me let me break this down, and then we can open this up for discussion. So there was a video that was put out, which was cut pieces of the, of a very long, multiple hour documentary that is, that is on the Battle of the Five Armies Blu-ray extended edition. And if you watch the video, it looks like you know Peter Jackson is just having the worst time. They they're, they're talking about laying track as the train is going and not having proper production time to uh, because Guillermo del Toro um, left the project after a year and a half of working on it. And then, uh, so, th- so they sort of take the reins over and they don't reset the clock. So there's not that pre-production time that they had with the Lord of the Rings. And this, uh, where I'm going with this and where the, where the bit is going is, this is why, especially the Battle of the Fire of Armies, is such a mess. Okay. If you actually watch through the entire documentary, most of the filming of The Hobbit isn't so bad. 
and they, they ran for quite a while. It was when they got to the actual Battle of Five Armies, Peter Jackson says, I didn't know what I was doing. Nothing had been blocked. Um, there really had been no vision for what it was going to be. But by that point, they had shot a lot of the movie. They shot a lot of um, what ended up being the Battle of Five Armies. Now, I think this is where uh, the rubber met the road, and they went from two movies to three movies, so they had to go back and shoot stuff, and they used stuff shot for um, the desolation of, what became the Desolation of Smog uh, for the Battle of Five Armies. But I don't think, the, the impression I got after watching the entire documentary straight through was it was as bad as the little snippet that came out made it sound. I think um, it could have been better, and, it, and had the pre-planning been there, it, you know, absolutely it could have risen to the level of Lord of the Rings. But given that they were, uh, given, given the situation that they were under, I actually think they did an admirable job. And they did eventually say, look, we need to, we, we need to slow this down. We need to send the second unit home and pick this up a year later uh, and create a third movie because if we don't, you're, this is going to be garbage. And I think... All in all, the Battle of the Five Armies turned out pretty good when you consider all these other factors. Um, so that's sort of my take on, on the Hobbit trilogy as a whole. I think the first one is not perfect. Um, the Desolation of Smog, I've got some issues with. And then the Battle of Five Armies, on the one hand, feels like one, ex one long extended battle sequence that shouldn't have been its own movie. On the other hand, when you throw in some of the, some of the extended cut stuff, I'm like, okay, there's a movie here. There's a movie that I can appreciate. <laughs> Exhale. <laughs> um, starting there, Andrew, your thoughts. Um, I'm, I think I'm smack in the middle. Like, I mean, the Hobbit trilogy is by no means a bad movie, but it's, it definitely doesn't live up to the, to the legacy that the Lord of the Rings trilogy did. And I mean, I think, um, one thing in kind of the, the background about what was going on with the, the delays in production was that MGM, who um, actually owned the distribution rights to The Hobbit, they were actually going through a multi-year um, bankruptcy case while, while they were trying to get the production going that led to the delays, that did led to Guillermo del Toro leaving, which would have been a really interesting version of that movie. But I mean, it's it's really admirable what Peter Jackson managed to pull off. I mean, it's definitely, it's not as substantial, but it's, uh, I mean, they're still definitely entertaining movies. I've got some beefs mainly around visuals and, and some fight choreography and some, and some story pacing stuff, mainly around the, the five armies. And I'll probably agree with Mark in two out of three cases that the extended editions are way better. I'll say that particularly for the first one. But yeah, the third the third one we'll talk to is an entity unto itself. Okay. Um, Sean, anything at this point, or because um, if not, I want to talk about the uh, the dinner party as a as a beginning place. Um, I'll keep things as brief as I reasonably can, and that is that overall, the first the uh, the first bunch, the unexpected journey, uh, just to kind of pick pick things up there. It succeeds in all the places where you would expect a Peter Jackson, J.R.R. Tolkien adaptation to succeed. Number one, it is visually stunning. Nobody has any right saying anything about this movie aesthetically. <clears throat> it both looks 
and sound utterly gorgeous. The performances are incredible and deserve to be considered to be utterly star-making or star-affirming for the cast from top to bottom. I really can't say a bad thing about, about any of them, including Welcome to Hell Back Andy Surface. God bless you, you magnificent bastard. Um, <laughs> you've got Ian McKellen, Kate Blanchett, Hugo Weaving, and Christopher Lee, and even Ian Holm all, all back. And they're joined by Martin Freeman, which is Armitage, which is Armitage. Um, oh, also the returning Elijah Wood. And you've also got to throw in performances by Sylvester, seventh fucking Dr. McCoy, um, and uh, Manu Bennett, who every time I see him, I like him more and more as an actor. Um, the the Roman Reigns was son of a bitch. Um, but unfortunately from there, it's, I don't want to say clumsily edited. I would say misguidedly structured. But it's, it is without a doubt probably, no, definitely the best movie of this particular trilogy. But as something that was expected to maybe hold a candle to anything from the original Lord of the Rings, not even remotely close, as uh, as Andrew suggested. This is not Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan. This is Michael Jordan jogging lazily up and down the court in a Washington Wizards uniform, and just making us all feel really, really awkward. Okay. Um, the first complaint that I've heard. I think that's the way I want to tackle this uh, because I, I've really got no complaints about an unexpected journey um, from, from soup to nuts, top to bottom. Uh, as, as Sean said, first of all, craft wise, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's pretty perfect. Um, and I think it's, it's the best one out of the three. However, the one complaint that I think I've heard from other people that I've had, that I have issues with and I, that makes it, for, for good conversation, is the dinner party. Um, this movie is a tad top-heavy. It takes forever to get going. Now, I can defend that because you've got, number one, the backstory of Arabor, uh, Arabor that you have to get through, but then you get to the Shire, and you spend forever in the Shire, especially at the dinner party, which as I understand it in the book, the dinner party also takes forever as well, but I don't want to keep re- referencing the book because we'll be here all night doing that. And no, we won't because Bog Talk Radio will cut us off. However, um, but the dinner party does go on for a long time. And I've heard people say, oh, my God, the singing. And, and, and it just it feels like the scene that never ends. And what is the whole point of this? And as I've said to people on multiple occasions, the point of the dinner party is, one, to establish the dwarves. First of all, to establish the plot. But this, but also to establish the dwarves as individuals. Um, again, not referencing the book, just just looking at this in terms of a, a, of cinema, of you know, something visual. I don't want a movie where there's the, where I'm going to be with these characters that I don't ever ever have a chance to get to know as people, even if they get sort of lost in the shuffle later on, as they will. I still want to have an opportunity to give a shit about why, you know, why they lost their home and why I want to see them get it back, which is the whole point of, uh, of the plot of this movie and, and their journey. So if you don't establish, 
and I'll let you guys weigh in here. If you don't take the time at the dinner party to establish why this is important, who are these people, why are they important, and why should we cheer them and be with them for the next you know, three films, then you don't really have a movie. If they had cut any part of the dinner party, I think, I think you would have done the characters a huge disservice. And if you're being a fair person, I think you do get a good idea of who each one of those, for the most part, especially if you watch the extended editions, uh, who each of those dwarves are, what they represent, and why they're in the party, and why they're important. Because, if, because again, if you don't, this is where I'll let you guys chime in, if you don't, then this becomes the, the, the Bilbo and Thorin show. And, okay, they, they can certainly carry the movie on their shoulders, but then you might as well lose half the company. This, they, they might as well have just let, let it be Thorin, Dwalin, Balin, uh, Keely, and Feely, and call it a day, which is, you know, which is not what we want here. Um, Sean and then Andrew, let's talk about the dinner party. Sean. Okay, so remember how two weeks ago I mentioned that in The Fellowship of the Ring, Bilbo's birthday party and everything that led up to it managed to show us so much in a very short, tight, efficient order that we need to really know about the characters. Okay, oddly enough, same deal here with the dinner party. It tells us everything, or rather I should say, since we're talking about me, it shows us everything we need to know about so many of the characters that we're going to be following for the next three movies. Does it quickly, gets it out of the way, manages to avoid clunky exposition dumps, it's, in my opinion, now this chair. I think it's one of the best executed parts of the entire trilogy. So, well done, Peter Jackson. Nice job. <laughs> Very nice job. Why do you think happening for the next two movies? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna keep you on the hook here, Sean, and then I'll throw a pitch to Andrew. Why do you think people complain about the dinner party? Why do you think people say, Oh, it's too long? Why this never goes anywhere? What is the point of this, et cetera, et cetera? Um, you know, I could be wrong, but you know what I generally hear when I hear people bitch about the dinner party scene? The same jackasses who don't like Quentin Tarantino movies because of all the long talking bits. The same ones who will snark on the first three Lord of the Ring movies and say, This is just four hours of these people walking around New Zealand. I don't get it. This is boring. This is the last one of you all because, quite frankly, I love that dialogue. I love those characters, those character setups, and I love the dinner party piece. Go ahead, Andrew. Um, I'm pretty much in agreement with you guys about the dinner party scene. I think it was, it was very much needed to try and establish the the overall character relationships, how you know how the dwarves interacted with each other, who they were, um, their roles in the group. So you kind of had an idea with that. I think it's also a good piece to kind of give you an idea on how, how Belbo will interact with it. Because, I mean, you know, Martin Freeman just goes out there and he plays the entire thing splendidly awkwardly. Like, he's just, you know, going out of his way to be painfully polite to these guys. And you can just he's, see him getting ready to blow an aneurysm halfway through the scene. But, um, I think, the word we're and I think it was something they needed to, uh, to flesh out a lot of the characters, which, um, and probably one of the rare 
times I'm going to make uh, references to the book. I felt that was one thing where the books have short changes that there's not a ton of character development, definitely with the dwarves, because you basically get a description of Thorin Sirius, Bomber's Fat, everybody has different colored cloaks, and that's about it. I think but the term you're looking for with, uh, with Martin Freeman's, with Martin Freeman's performance is uh, foppish. I think the word we're looking for with his performance is he was foppish. Yes, Bothan. He was a bit dainty. <laughs> he had his doilies. Yes. He was very concerned with his mother's doilies. Yeah, um, he had a hole in it. <laughs> so, moving on from the dinner party, um, I really don't know about a whole lot of complaints about the rest of the the rest of the movie. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the bit with the trolls, the bit with the cave trolls, Plays pretty much plays pretty much straight. You know, there's no no problems there. Again, you get to, you know, and my son is bouncing. Can you please take him into the bedroom? Thank you. Because now the whole world knows that he's bouncing. I I, no. I I think that kid in the background really likes Manu Bennett because he keeps screaming about Doc Rocky. Anywho, um, moving right along. Uh, the cave girls play uh, pretty, pretty pretty straight. Um, the, uh, the them being pursued in the in the wild by uh, by the orcs plays pretty straight. You know, the, as near as I can tell, no no issues there. Um, I have to talk really quickly about the extended sequence in Rivendell because <laughs> I wish they had left this in. This is it was so funny to me. Um, another, this is another bit where my wife and I tend to tend to quote uh, this movie. We were both just going to look at each other and go like, "I don't like green food." Um, but besides that, the uh, in the extended sequence there, by the end of it, uh, the, all the dwarves are naked and <laughs> swimming in front of these fountains. Um, they do it, and they do a song and a dance and everything. They finally tell the harp player to knock it off. Uh, I love all that. I thought that was great. But me in the regular theatrical, it's just they, they just go, I don't like green food, and we're off and running in a different direction. Um, after that, you know, shortly after that, they, yeah, I think you've got the bit where um, uh, they, 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 okay, Goblin Town. This is the other thing that I see that people complain about. The Goblin King, the stupid song he sings. You know, this old man came rolling down. Um, Otherwise known as Welcome to Goblin Town, and uh, just that this is where we get to the first part of Peter Jackson uh, playing in a world with absolutely no physics. So let me take a pause there. Um, this this is what I mean by it, it takes the Legolas ninja stuff from the Lord of the Rings and kicks it up about tenfold. The things they got away with doing in the battle in Goblin Town were on the border of ridiculous, if not full-blown silly. Almost to the point where it takes you out of the movie. And thankfully, you have Martin Freeman and Andy Serkis uh, not too long after this to sort of bring things back down to uh, a, a palatable reality where you, know, you actually have two characters giving awesome performances. Thank God. Because otherwise, you have what amounts to, in my opinion, a, a roller coaster ride. I'm going to go with Andrew now. Andrew, Goblin Town. Speak to me, sir, Goose. 
I will say, uh, I will say, in terms of the Goblin King, I actually like the song, and I thought that was uh, that was pretty awesome. The rest of the scene, I'm very much in agreement with you, and I think it. This is probably where I'm going to inject one of my thesis about the uh, the problems with the movie as a whole. Um, it's an over reliance on CG, and I I hate to say that knowing what Peter Jackson did with the first one. Um, at one point, they actually had gone through and and put all of the other little goblins, and they had made them into guys with masks, and then they eventually did something where they were going to uh, basically mocap the heads on to give them more expression. And eventually, Peter Jackson said, I don't like any of this. We're going all CG with er everything. And at that point, the scene kind of falls apart as far as as far as, you know, how everything interacts, and, and you're right, the physics go out the window. It's kind of a problem I have with the whole series, because even though a lot of it's fil filmed outdoors and in the, you know, the, the absolutely gorgeous uh, backgrounds of New Zealand, you, you the first set of movies, you very much got the sense that it was a real world filled with fantastic things, and that they were shooting on location in Middle Earth. This set of movies felt a lot more like uh, basically they were shooting on a green screen and then basically putting in some real stuff here and there and I think that that gives a lot of uh, this kind of sets the tone for it in a lot of ways uh, the other issue that I kind of start to run into here is um, talking about fight choreography because again you start dealing with things where you're dealing with guys who are just um you know, just CG sprites or whatever you wish to call them, you start to get really silly stuff coming out of the cast. I think there's there's literally a scene where uh, Thorin gets surrounded and he literally spins a hundred or sorry, three hundred and sixty degrees and kills every single one of them, which is just <laughs> silly. And uh, trust me, I have a rant about the five armies that we'll be getting to, but I mean, this is kind of the start of of a lot of the fight choreography kind of going out the window in a lot of ways. And I mean, uh, I, he hadn't passed at this point, but I think, uh, I think Bob Anderson wasn't able to work on this one, but they also changed a lot of their filming methods. Like I remember watching some of the documentaries and instead of these guys having prop weapons, they literally had a, the bottom of the handle of a prop weapon. And then they had a, a green section where they were going to, CGI in whatever the end of the weapon was going to be and I mean it's just it, it takes away some of that some of that engagement with the audience that it's a lot easier to engage with a guy in a rubber suit than it is with a CGI sprite Sean this old man came rolling came uh, rolling down go King Sean demands more Ninja Andrew Orlando Blue <laughs> <laughs> I want more Ninja in my Hobbit movie uh, no. Oh, you like this? You like you like oh. getting excessively? Uh, you know what? I needed something. Uh, I needed something to take me out of just the unsettling thought of, oh, the Lucas is strong with this fat bearded kiwi. Um, <laughs> oh, because that's when this really started to feel very prequel like. Um, this was, it, it was what it was, you know, Andrew nailed it. Um, CGI, when done extremely carefully with a very fine touch, 
can be every bit as useful as practical effects. This is very true. However, if nothing else, Jackson's previous three movies proved that he just does practical effects so damn well on such a grand scale that you wonder just what in the hell would possess him to settle for anything else. Uh, and I'm I'm sorry, the the Star Wars prequel comparison is the best one that I could possibly make because that's kind of how disastrous this all starts to feel. And uh, yeah, you know what? Oh, fuck it, I need something to enjoy. So yes, I will settle for Ninja Legolas. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm not gonna I, I'm not gonna sit here and complain too much about too much about the physics because it's after a while, I'm going to start to sound like the interview Jim Cornette gave recently where he complained that uh, Lucha Underground was exposing the wrestling business as fake. Really, yeah, Jimbo. Jim, I feel like Jim Cornette has had a mini-stroke, and doctors just haven't told him he's had it yet. Um, so let's, let's move on here. Um, they get out of... I, I don't think there's anything left to be said about the... the um, the scene between Martin Freeman and and, and uh, Andy Serkis, Bilbo and Gollum, it's perfect. It's that could have been a stage play between the two of them, um, and and that's why I don't I don't want to spend time. I, I, I can if you want to, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of time just because you know the clock is running here on um, showering praise. Um, just it, it was it was perfect. It was it was amazing. They they are there was a stellar performance in, in both cases. And later on, when we get to Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch as Bilbo and Smog, much the same thing. Um, so just rolling forward here, uh, we get to the, you know, they're out of there. We get, they're pursued once again by the orcs. They go up a tree. Uh, there's a small quibble. Thorne should have been dead when the, um, the super orc, what the hell is this? Azog, the defiler. No, 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 just call him Super Orc. I like Super Orc. <laughs> Did I get muted? Sean, I can hear you. Uh, oh, well, you can hear me. Oh, okay. Because everything went quiet for a second. I was like, what happened? Did Blog Talk just decide to cut me off this time? I'm not sure. I will say if uh, if we're still recording that both uh, Azog and Bolg are another good kind of Part of my theory that it would have been way better if those were two guys in rubber suits. I'm starting I'm here. to just watch part. Oh, there. Nope, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> wow, By the way, that, that was frightening because I really thought because I really thought Blockout Radio just ended the show and I almost threw the entire table that had my computer on it and I realized no, no, no. I just Skype cut me off for whatever reason. I just have to dial in. Breathe, breathe, breathe. Okay. Um, so was the Matrix. <laughs> well, it happens. Um, so, uh, where was I? They're up a tree. They're saved by the eagles. Um, I was going somewhere with this. Andrew, help me out here. What was I talking about? They're up the tree, and then they had the fight between uh, uh, Azog the Defiler and Thorin. And you were right. saying that Thorin should have been killed by something, probably the wolf, yeah. the ward. Uh, well, no, I'm okay with I'm okay with being bitten by a wolf. It happens. Um, what I'm not okay with 
is someone, you know, who looks like fucking Batista or Brock Lesnar um, taking, I think it was a mace, and smashing it full force into someone's jaw, who's roughly, I, I don't care that, you know, dwarfs are, you know, can uh, can lift twice their size like ants or something, Peter Jackson said. Um, took, I mean, you got to be with me on this, Andrew. Took a mace, swung it full force at somebody, you know, who is half his size, hit him squat in the jaw, and he just, you know, he takes a bit of a nap. I yeah, mean, that was the, when you, to be fair, no, I think they could have inferred that he died at that point. And was brought back by the magic of eagle flight? I, <laughs> how did he die? How did he come back to life then? No, no, no. Uh, Gandalf was was with him, and I think he did something. Okay. If that's the case, then I missed it, um, and, I, and I'll let it go. Uh, anything left? On, that, that's my only quibble with the end of uh, An Unexpected Journey is I thought that I, I thought Thorin got the shit beat out of him a little too much to the point where I'm like, how are you still alive in this thing? But I kind of just roll my eyes and let it go. Figured here, you know, um, I have a podcast to talk about stuff like that, so I did. Sean, things left unsaid, an unexpected journey. Go. No. You guys nailed it. I just... Super Orc and Ninja Orlando Blue. Andrew, things left unsaid. I expect the journey. Go. Uh, I would say that the theatrical cut was significantly improved upon by the uh, by the uh, extended edition. and No, otherwise, once you see that version, then it's a much better movie. Agreed. And it's, and it's, and it's even the best out of the three, wouldn't you say? Even just by, without the theatrical, the um, extended cut. I don't know. I I really do like Desolation of Smog. There are some issues with it, but it's a toss-up. Those two ones are both pretty good. Okay. So let's talk about the elephant in the room right now with when it comes to the Desolation of Smog. And that is Kate from Lost. Okay? Um, as she is known by, by many. Evangeline Lilly, the Wasp. Uh, Tauriel, as she's actually called in these movies. Fans are divided on this um, in terms of she's a Mary Sue. Uh, that's one camp. She, she's a Mary Sue. She's perfect. She's just not an interesting character. And burn her at the stake. She sucks. That seems to be the two camps. It's just, <laughs> not a whole lot of love for, for Miss Lily uh, in these movies. So I, that, that, I want to start there um, before we get into some of the scene breakdowns. Uh, Peter Jackson made a made a concerted effort to bring back some characters from the original trilogy, whether that was uh, a studio thing, a, a consciousness thing, or, or who knows what he was thinking. But he invents a character, I think, on a whole cloth with uh, with Tariel, and uh, and then invents a love story between her and um, and one of the dwarves. And there are people have issues with her with her being in the in the thing in the first place. They have issues with her characterization. They have issues with the woman's performance. I can't find a person who says anything positive about this character or the actor playing her, which befuddles me because I don't think it's that bad. Number one, I'm, I'll be the first to admit I don't have a problem with the interspecies love story between her and uh, Keeley. I thought it was interesting. I thought it added another element. I think if you're trying to, you know, cut things and try to make this two movies, you don't need that character and you don't need that love story. But uh, on the other hand, 
I thought it was I thought it was something interesting going on in the movie outside of the main plot. So I'll allow it. Um, I thought she gives a fine performance for what she's told to do. The elves are fucking perfect. I mean, that's the way they're presented in these movies. Ninja or uh, Ninja Legolas can take down the entire orc army by himself with just a sword and, and a bow and arrow. So why couldn't she? And I don't understand why. Why if it's okay for Ninja Legolas, it's not okay for Ninja Toriel. So I'm gonna go to Andrew first on this, and then Sean, uh, if he has any strong feelings one way or the other. Uh, let's talk about Toriel. Your thoughts, sir? I thought I'm actually in the same camp as you, Mark. I thought I thought Evangeline Lilly was perfectly fine. I thought I thought you know she did well in her performance. She did well in the physical scenes. I thought she had really good chemistry with. I believe the actor's name is, is Aiden Quinn. I thought that, again, added some character and added some more engagement for the audience within the story. I thought it was a good story, especially once you start to combine that with some of the, the threads they're, they're weaving with um, Thrandall in the, uh, in the third movie. And I don't, I don't see a lot of complaints with it. Um, we can talk Ninja Elves very shortly, but... Yeah, I don't really have much of a problem with uh, with Toriel in that one, and I'm fully allowed, fully allowing myself to admit possible Canadian bias in this case. <laughs> Sean, give your thoughts, but also I want you to once again speak to me of the minds of the people who can't seem to deal with this woman and her participation in this uh, film trilogy. Sean, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry, I'm still muted. Um, uh, no, actually, first, Andrew, uh, close, it was actually Aiden Turner, not Aiden Quinn. Um, okay. I can see the name familiar name, so no, you know, no points out there. Um, as as far as Evangeline Lilly goes, Andrew pretty much nailed it. I'll just say that I'm I'm a little biased because I'm a big Lost fan, and so... Every time she opens her mouth, I just reflexively want just want to yell, "Shut the fuck up, Kate!" <laughs> uh, we don't have to go back, no. Uh, but as, as an actress, she's perfectly she's perfectly okay. Uh, she, as you said, you know, as in just about everything she does, she handles the physicality just fine. Uh, so uh, nothing wrong there. She actually really looks the part of an elf. Um, she kind of looks like she'd be right at home in well, in, in that same bloodline as Arwen, um, so to speak. But I think it's just generally the fact that if I had to guess and really grasp at straws, it's maybe part of the fact that she didn't play a really likable character on Lost. So there were some people who can't exactly separate character from performer, and so they were a little bit salty about that fact. Um, some people who maybe, as I pointed out last week, didn't entirely understand that... Uh, the elves are not exactly supposed to be acting with with great Christopher Lee or Ian McKellen dramatic flourishes, but they're supposed to be very tempered and very level-headed, so that might be why they felt it was a little bit flat. 
Um, and and then there's just the fact that you know she's kind of shoehorned into the movie, and you're gonna get and you, you gotta remember for just about any dyed in the wool lifelong geek, if you were to craft a coat of arms for 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 our people for our tribe, the the motto across the bottom of it would simply be and I don't speak Latin, so I don't know how you would translate this, but just well actually. <laughs> uh, we we are the we are and I count myself occasionally amongst this the most willfully obnoxiously pedantic bastards capable of ruining just about absolutely anything with our vocal grousing and nitpicks. Um, I, I would even point out there were a lot of people who trashed the entire first trilogy in all its damn near perfection because they felt that Peter Jackson doing doing his duty for God and country to adapt this mammoth epic saga for the screen had to kind of play slightly fast and loose with some parts of the source material and felt that that just sullied the entire thing. Because it wasn't letter perfect, identical, down to the letter, exactly as they wanted it to be. Um, to give you another example, as far as Evangeline Lilly is concerned, look at Superman, Batman, very Superman, not Justice League. Um, you have a lot of people who are very, very, very pissed about Gal Gadot being cast as Wonder Woman. Yes, it's part of that with the fact that they cast an underwear model who put people to sleep in a Fast and Furious movie as as DC's iconic Amazon. But then you've also got people who were equally up in arms because apparently Warner Brothers didn't listen to the rabid fan casting that was absolutely screaming bloody murder into the void, like how were monkeys coated in lava demanding that Gina Carano be cast for the part. Their horse didn't come in first, so now they're just butthurt about the whole thing. For all I know, there may be fans that may have somebody that ideally they feel should have should have been cast, they didn't get it, and so now they take all their angst out on the fact that Evangeline Lilly got the part. I personally don't get it, I don't think she exactly sets the world on fire for me as far as the movie is concerned, but I also don't think she's the turn in the punch bowl either. So, hope that's... Uh, agree. No, I, I think there's a lot of fair points. Go ahead, Andrew. That would be Alfred. <laughs> yes, well, well, we'll get to him shortly. Um, okay, so... Let's um now now we've gotten that out of the way there. Let's talk about some of these scenes here. Uh, I'll tell you right off the bat, <clears throat> getting lost in Merkwood, the extended sequence, that's not the only thing in the movie where I was like, please get on with this. This I didn't need. This could have stayed cut from the movie. The the it, I mean Robert Winfrey and I had a discussion, Andrew, you were privy to this about, you know, how do you take the desolation of smog as it is right now in the Battle of Five Armies as as it is right now? and cut those into one movie. And one of the things I was, and I'm going to get to my big one in a minute, but the first thing I'm cutting is getting lost in Merkwood. Wow, that takes forever. 
And I understand you have to establish that they're lost, but you could do that better. You could do that a bit swifter. Um, you didn't and get necessarily to the spiders, need the spiders either. Say what? You didn't necessarily need the spiders either. You just needed to have them get lost long enough and then run into elves. I think you do need the spiders. I think that, you know, the spiders are in the source material. I, and, you know, it's, it's a nice little... It, it's yet another situation where Bilbo can get them out of danger, which is sort of a running gag throughout the entire Hobbit series. Um, but you don't need spiders talking either. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. getting get lost in Markwood, get nearly eaten by spiders, get saved by elves, get to fucking um, whatever the name of the kingdom is. Uh, what's what's um, what is the name of that kingdom? That 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 particular elf kingdom? The Lake Town, Lake Town, or do you mean the Woodland Realm? The Woodland Realm. That's what I was, that's what I was referring to. Yeah, get to the Woodland Realm within the first five minutes of the movie here. We don't need to spend a tremendous amount of time on this. But, it, but boy, it goes on forever. That, that's one of those where I feel like Peter Jackson, you know, as much as I like him as a director and I love what he's done with these movies, there are certain exercises in masturbation, as I like to call them, where I'm just like, come on, did this really need to be this long? And that was one of them. It takes forever to get into the Woodland Realm, and it really shouldn't have. Which brings me to the next thing I wanted to cut. Um, if you if I if I step on anyone's toes here and say something, you're like, hey, hold the phone. I, I'm personally offended by that. Feel free to stop me. But um, if not, I want I want to get to some of these points. I'm I'm very much torn with this next thing because and I love it visually, but I also visually love a pie in the face. Okay, you ever see it? You ever see someone take a pie in the face? You know, they had Grease Live on recently, and one of the actors actually missed. But in the, in, the, in the theatrical version, when the coach takes that pie in the face, it's hysterical. Uh, and I love a good silly action sequence, especially one that looks like it was performed by gymnasts. So as much as I love the barrel ride sequence, who doggy, you need to cut something? Cut that. Cut the orcs out of it entirely. They get they release the barrels. They float off. Next thing they meet Bard. Wow, does that take forever? And like I said, visually it would be something I enjoy. I look forward to it in the movie. On the other hand, what a worthless action scene! It does nothing for the narrative. It just feels like a ride that I don't get to go on. Let me stop there. Andrew, your thoughts? Very much. Well. This comes to this thing where, where this trilogy is so frustrating because there's parts of it that are fantastic and there's parts of it that are just, who needs it? And the Barrel Rider scene is a really good example of that. Because when you're going through it, like, the way they actually shot them coming down the river and everything like that, that's fine. I think doing the, doing the, the kind of that setup pursuit is really cool. Um, and honestly, anything where where either Legolas or Turiel are not, like, standing on dwarves' heads or hanging upside <laughs> down or any of that silly shit is really great. Like, they've actually got some fantastic knife-fighting choreography in there, which which I absolutely love. But, or, sorry, the one that I really hate is Bomber gets ejected out of the, uh, out of the river on <laughs> shore, covered in a barrel, pops his arms out, then takes out about 15... Orcs by again spinning in a fucking circle. Really I quick, am... I want to continue, but if you ever watched the Cinema Sins Everything Wrong with, 
and the everything along with the desolation, the smog, whereas you see him bouncing, not killing dwarves as he's bouncing, and then stopping, and poof, out come two axes, and he starts to spin. All the CinemaSin thing says is, everything this scene is and stands for. Oh, it's it's absolutely just, it blows my mind because on some level, and again, this is where we're kind of going back and forth between genius and what the hell. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> this is not a bug bunny the only cartoon. way I can describe it. Because on the one hand, you've got, you know, you've got this really well choreographed work with, with Toriel and Legolas when they're not bouncing off other stuff, fighting multiple enemies with knives, and then you have this shit come up, and it's just like, what? When am I supposed to suspend my disbelief? You really? I wanted Balin to then pull out a paintbrush and like paint a, you know, a tunnel for them to go through, and then have an orc magic. <laughs> Very good point. One other thing I want to just pop in here with, um, since you're talking about, uh, since you mentioned the scene on um, them getting lost. One thing I noticed after reading the Hobbit, because I read the Hobbit about halfway through when I was watching the movie series. And the one thing I did notice about it is that Peter Jackson didn't really cut much from the overall narrative. I mean, he had to trim down Lord of the Rings, but the, the Hobbit, he basically kept everything, and then he added on things that, frankly, I thought the book needed anyway, like additional character development, explaining where Gandalf went when he needed to disappear, which I actually thought was some really good stuff. But, again, there's probably some stuff from the core Hobbit narrative that could have been left out. Um, I don't know. I, I think some of that stuff's iconic. You know, the spiders was iconic. The battle ride's iconic. Um, but that's the thing. The battle ride didn't need to be a 15-minute battle sequence either. Oh, exactly. I think you need to. I think you need to do it. You need to have Randall sort of looking at the at his drunk asleep uh, people that you know that let them get away and have him you know curses them in Elvish and you know you hear wah wah and then you know cut to them down the river and we run into Bard. Yeah. You know. That's all that needed to happen there, especially because now you've got two things happening. You have Gandalf's side quest where he's going to check on the Nazgul to see if they've been um, unearthed from their, from their tomb, which they have. And then, he and, and then him and Radagast go to uh, Dogodor and he'll inevitably get captured. So there's that whole thing. And, I, and, and I'm glad it's in the movie. In the extended edition, they actually, they actually find uh, Thorin's father, um, and you get his whole story, which I which I think adds a ton to the narrative. I really like that part. I would have I, much rather have that than the stupid barrel ride sequence, the way that it's shot. Yeah, and I really enjoyed that entire B plot actually. Like I thought, because again in the book, there's just these, these scenes where where Gandalf disappears and then he comes back. I mean, it's, it's Deus Ex Wizard, and uh, giving him something else to do that also feeds into setting up. Lord of the Rings, I thought was a really clever way, and I thought the way they set that up was just well executed. Um, so then we, we finally do get to Lake Town, and this was where uh, Winfrey and I really got into a polite but vicious argument over did we really need the political unrest subplot of, the, of Lake Town? Um, oh, again, if you're trying to make three movies, you do need it. If you and I think it adds to Bard's character. I think it, you know, it, it adds to ultimately what leads to the decision to let the dwarves go on. To I mean, let, let's think about what's happening here. Here you have a town that 
you know, poverty stricken, and you have a, you have a tyrannical master of the lake, uh, master of the town, and he has no reason to let these dwarves go anywhere. But you know, he does so out of greed. But he's taking an awful chance because there's a live goddamn dragon across the lake. And I think to get to the decision where he says, "Go tempt fate and see if you can get in there and get out without waking the stupid dragon," you need that entire setup. I think you needed the um, the plot tension between uh, the master of the lake and Alfred and Bard. Um, I think a lot of what's in Lake Town is needed to tell that story. And I don't know if you can get there any quicker. You know, I think Winfrey's thing was cut the whole bloody thing. Just get the duck, get to the fucking mountain already. But why? If you've got a whole third movie to go, why would you cut what I, what I think is a, a story that is needed to get you to the mountain in the first place? You can do it. You can just get to the mountain. But I think then you don't get to know Bard as a character, and Bard's going to become a major player um, once you know once he kills the dragon. So let, let's get some thoughts there. Lake Town, how does that play for you? Uh, Sean, do you want to go on this one first? Oh, it's hard for me to have much of an opinion. I mean, I'm kind of fond of it because it has Stephen Fry and Amen, there's. Uh, yeah, and there there is no such thing as a bad time for Stephen Fry. Um, he, he's one of those actors that I just think he needs to be in damn near everything forever because he just makes everything better. Um, and throw Hugh Laurie into the mix, and lo and behold, you have classic just about anything. And, you know, I, I, I think it's kind of refreshing, especially when you juxtapose it against Power Rangers Hobbit Force, <laughs> I'm serious every time I watch that goddamn sequence I just want to dub either Guile theme or a little classic um, uh, Ron Wasserman early 90's Power Rangers music over it because I'm fully convinced it will absolutely fucking fit um, I love the action in, and again yes I'm going to keep making this comparison because they're the movies of the six that I actually liked. Um, Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King, I liked the action in those because it was shot practically as much as possible. It was well choreographed. Um, some of the flippy, flippy bullshit with Orlando, Lo- Orlando Bloom aside, it felt believable for what it was. What goes on in this movie, though... No. I, I, I no longer feel like I'm watching a fantasy epic. I feel like I'm watching an anime, which if I wanted to watch anime, I would go watch anime. Somewhere um, out there, there's a producer who's got to take that final sequence from Desolation of Smog where they're trying to kill the dragon with, with, with the gold statue and turn it into a Circus du Soleil. <laughs> I mean... And, and and just to kind of levy a, a general commentary on the on the whole movie, despite the fact that I again I kind of liked the sequence in late in Lake Town because it balanced out the fuckery in the other parts. Um, I, I kept reading as I was doing research for this that 
early reviews were, reviews were very encouraging at at the time. They were glowing with critics describing it as a spectacle. Okay, everybody, if you're out there reading early reviews for any of the big upcoming blockbusters, I don't care if it's Suicide Squad. God help you if you're going to see that. I don't Woo-hoo. care if it's Batman very Superman. Woo-hoo. I don't I don't care if I don't care if it's if it's Deadpool, which even I'll admit I'm kind of excited about. Woo-hoo. Things you've got to remember about early screenings. Oftentimes they're screened for fans. No fucking shit they're going to like it. They're carefully chosen because they're predisposed to Disposed to. I read a, again Deadpool. I read a story about the other day. Early screening at fan events are very encouraging. Well, of course, because they're Deadpool fans. They love everything Deadpool. I could dress their grandmother's ghosts up in a red and black jumpsuit with dual katana, with dual katanas, and they would probably need a couple towels immediately. Of course, they're going to like it as long as you don't show them something from X Men Origin. You can't count on that. You have to wait until other more objective folk have gone to see have gone to see the movie to see who says, Yeah, it's excellent and who says, I want whatever the early audiences were smoking. That was a piece of shit. I want to see what they saw. Because it's it's a bad it's one thing when you have a chapter or chapters in the franchise in which the extended editions make a great movie phenomenal, and then when you need the extended editions to make an average, clumsy movie into a good one. The latter is a bad sign. That means you should have just split it in two instead of trying to divide one movie into three and thinking it was going to be the same as doing three long-ass movies based on three long-ass books. It's not. It's not the same. It's like what happens if you let an inept ex Saturday Night Live character take a few minutes long, long short about video game characters that come to Earth and turn it into a 90-minute comedy. Because who would try to do that? <laughs> so your thoughts on like, if, if we're going to talk about bad SNL movies, can we talk about like a Night at the Roxbury as opposed to Coneheads? I, I will end this podcast. Andrew, let's have a go. Um, I'm kind of on the same page with everybody. I thought uh, Lake Town was fine. You definitely needed it to to establish Bard and to uh, to uh, you know give him some stakes to also run on it as well. Establish his character. Establish where he plays. Um, going back to one thing Sean said, the I have finally figured out a way to make Alfred palatable. Recast him as Hugh Laurie. <laughs> Doug, stop drilling. You have struck oil. Okay. In the Hard interest to... of time, I want to skip to the very last thing in the Desolation of Smog. Now, the sequence in the book, just I, I feel the need to compare here, is they have their they have their little dance, Bilbo and Smog do, which once again, yeah. kudos to Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, phenomenal. Could have been a stage play. I, I could just watch... Um, Misty Mountains and uh, the Gold Horde 
sequences by themselves and be perfectly satisfied. They're so good. You know, when you talk about dialogue-driven, that aside. Um, in, the, in the book, as, as I recall, Smog comes to the same conclusion that uh, Bilbo is from Lake Town and decides, well, then Lake Town has to go. Goodbye, sir. And <laughs> takes off and um, then Bart shoots him. Spoiler alert. And, and then that's it. That's the end. So if you're you, you can't really do that here, you, you know they're they're trying to to do one they're trying to give the dwarves something to do because if you don't then the dwarves are again pretty useless throughout this throughout the entire affair and you want to make sure they're relevant to the narrative. So giving them something to do like having a stake and dealing with this dragon uh, was not I think a bad decision. However, the way they went about doing it, I don't know. I don't know if I even would have come up with a better idea, but the idea that came up with a little on the silly side. Essentially, they're going to try to trap this dragon in gold. That's that's their plan. And what you get is, this is like I said before, is Dwarf Circus du Soleil. And I'm, I'm, it's kind of like the power riding sequence. Okay, I get it. I see the need for it. You know, and visually it was fun to watch. On the other hand... Fun can also be stupid, and boy, is it stupid! I'm gonna, I'm gonna, for the sake of time, I'm gonna leave it there, and and just like I don't even know how else you handle making the dwarves relevant and dealing with the dragon, um, so that you have a satisfying ending to Desolation of Smog, or do you just, or do you not even bother, and just have Smog come to the conclusion, hey, you're from Lake Town, fuck them people, and go do his thing, and the dwarves are going, well, that was easy enough. <laughs> Goodbye, sir. Well, we'll be moving back into Erebor now. Go ahead, Andrew. Let, let, let's wrap up our discussion here of Desolation of Smog by talking about uh, Dwarf, du Soleil, Dwarf Circus du Soleil. I, I don't think you're too far off on that one. Um, I remember watching this part very specifically in the uh, documentaries, and basically this is one of those cases where, where Peter Jackson was winging it. And I mean, at least give him, at least give him credit for, for coming up with something creative for them to do in terms of the, the plan with the, the giant gold statue. But he literally went on a green screen room, got all the actors basically running around shooting reactions, and then basically put together an action sequence based on that in post-production, which as far as it goes, I mean, it's still better than nine tenths of the stuff that Michael Bay puts together, but it's, uh, <laughs> It is kind well, of great to tell who the characters are. You know. Oh, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's still kind of, it's still just kind of there as a as a bit of filler. So I mean, I'm I'm, and that end of it, I'm with you. I remember watching that with my wife. My wife's really into it. She doesn't know any about the movies, and she really likes the Hobbit trilogy. Which kind of, I like to use her as a base of you know, of, you know, this is what the average person thinks who isn't obsessing over this stuff. Um, and she likes the Hobbit trilogy. She really enjoyed them. She was anxious to see the third movie. And I remember she watched that whole bit with the gold, you know, with the gold statue. And she was like, hey, that was a lot of fun. Is that in the book? And I'm like, oh, God, no. <laughs> Nothing like that happens in the book. Um, just like I said, you know, like you said, when you're, when you're up against the clock and you're trying to figure out how to end this stupid movie and you want to end it on a, you know, on a real punctuation mark and not, a, uh, not an ampersand, I suppose that was one way to go. All right, closing the book on the desolation of smog, unless anyone's got a burning desire. Burning desire, Andrew? Burning desire, Sean? Well, what actually you're going to do? I didn't even make this movie. I'm sorry. 
Okay. Let's move into the Battle of the Five Armies. I was talking to Winfrey about this when we reviewed it uh, at the ass end of 2014. I really would have liked a little bit more in terms of making Smog a uh, horrifying menace visually on screen. Because essentially, he conducts an air raid. (laughs) He just passes, fire, passes, fire. And then the only real villainous menace that he presents uh, is when he is when he's stalking Bard and the kid is there and he's like, I'm going to murder your child. Oh, well, that's horrifying. That, that, that's absolutely bone-chilling. But up to that point, you know, it was just like, yeah, all right, this is, this is torching a town. And you don't really... I didn't feel like you got that, the, the sense of how malevolent Smog really is. You know, they, they were talking about in the documentary that there's a scene where that they had thinking about shooting and they had done an animation for where Smog takes out the bridge, um, takes out a bridge with his claws and then passes and fries everybody that's left. And they were like, ooh, that's too murderous. No, that's what I'm looking for here. This is Last Dance with Mary Jane, man. This is Last Dance with Smog, his last appearance in the movie. Let him have his glory before we finally unceremoniously shoot him in the belly. Spoiler alert. So I want to start there. I feel like there was a missed opportunity with the uh, with the burning of Lake Town and just how evil they could make Smog. I felt like they, end, they ended so well. You know, I am fire. I am death. And then he shows up, and yeah, he's killing people, but eh, I I got the sense that they just wanted to get to the movie, get to the Battle of Five Armies, and you know, bur- the burning of Lake Town was something they needed to do, check it off the list. But I didn't feel like there was enough time spent on it, or enough of portraying just how evil Smog is. Your thoughts, Andrew? I th- I think you're right. We we definitely needed some more time in there. I don't know if we actually needed Smog doing more or necessarily just saying more. Because I, think... I wanted him to like. I wanted him to you know to narrate more. Like, Aha! Exactly. You know that sort of a thing. You know what I mean? I wanted him to be like an over the top scene chewing villain. Right. Oh, exactly. I think that's exactly what you need because I mean, you know. Benedict Cumberbatch came in and brought his A game with the entire um, the entire smog thing, and I mean the guy's got he's he's on that short list of people who could read the phone book and, and make money doing it, and the way he came in and just you know gave that character and used the word such malevolence, let him have some fun with that as he's burning the town, let him taunt people, let him claim his greatness, and I think that would have been a great lead up to him uh, him having the showdown with Bart. Yeah, agreed. Um, Sean, what did you think of the burning of Lake Town? Oh, congratulations, guys. Way to basically waste Binky Coochie parts as opposed to just letting him steal the show and drive the entire movie. No, 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 by all means, that sounds interesting. Taking arguably one of maybe the best performer of the entire trilogy and uh, just basically reducing him to, well, just to make it full circle, uh, Christopher Lee in Return of the Fucking King. Nice <laughs> job. Well done, Gene. Doofy fucking fat man. 
He's the Chaturi. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like I said, up until the final stalking of Bard and his king, uh, Bard and his kid, I did like the, I did like how they finally took him, took him out. I liked the Black Arrow bit. I liked having to, you know, shoot off the kid's shoulder. I thought that was fun. Um, so let, let's get into the rest of this movie. Um, my first major, like, I don't get it. Well, <laughs> just this just feels like you need something for this character to do. Uh, sending Legolas off to Gundabad, which you know sounds like a place that you might find Jar Jar Binks. Um, sending them off to Gundabad to basically lie on the mountain and go, "Yup, the enemy's coming." And there's no real payoff for that. And I'll, and I'll tell you what I mean. This is the second army that's supposed to pretty much mop up what the first army uh, is doing. So, so essentially, the, the, the battle plan for Erebor is you have Azog coming in, and he's going to you know take out whatever's there, the, you know the men, the dwarves, the elves, um, and re- you know re- reduce the size of that army. And then Bulg is supposed to come in from the opposite way and pretty much mop everybody up. And yeah. And because of the way that they did it, you know, you have I'm, – I'm skipping around here, but you have, uh, you have you know, this whole sequence of, of Thorin um, having a mental breakdown and then gaining, regaining his sanity and then leading that uh, iconic charge, you know, where they rally behind their king. Um, so uh, the, the, the big vision that everyone sees, them running out of Erebor and running directly into the orcs. That's still the first army. You never really get a sense that Bulg's army is any kind of threat. Because instead of dealing with it, uh, Thorin takes a a squad of dwarves and goes to Raven Hill. And then the only other time it's ever referenced (coughs) is when the Eagles and Bjorn show up with with, uh, Radagast. And I thought there was a missed opportunity there to really show the dread of what's happening or why this army from Gundabad was such a horrible thing. Um, it also, again, feels like just something for Legolas and, and Toriel to do because they don't need them right now. It's like, here, go to Gundabad for a little bit and then come back when we need you, when we need Legolas to do more gymnastics. So there's a starting point. Um, some thoughts here. Uh, can I go first on this one? You have the mic, sir. Excellent. Um, three points on this one. So, first off, I agree with you in relation to the Gundabad thing. I mean, they could have expressed the whole thing by maybe having Gandalf see the army or something like that. Like, I mean, I think they, they figured out how to do this a lot more elegantly in the Two Towers by having Aragorn kind of stumble upon them by accident as opposed to sending this very specific two people to go do something which doesn't really pay off. Two, and I think this kind of goes to again how the how the movie is staged. When you read it in the book, and even when you compare it to all the other battle scenes like Pelennor Fields or or um, or Helm's Deep, all of those battles are very very well staged, and in the book they're very well described. You can definitely tell that that Tolkien, um, who wasn't who wasn't uh, in the British Army, did have some understanding of how these sorts of things worked and how it's described. And it's not a well-staged battle. And I think, again, that kind of 
contributes to the chaos that we're about to see throughout the rest of the movie. And thirdly, and this is almost a question to you two guys, I almost get the impression that the the orc armies and the Battle of the Five, Ar- Five Armies were actually even more of a threat than either the 10,000 Urukai or the 200,000-man full-size army corps that attacked Pelennor Fields. I'll let you guys <laughs> respond to that last question. Because they seem, they seem scarier, they seem more organized, they seem to have more scary things to bring with them. Um, well, I, Helm's Deep, yes. Pelennor Fields, no. Pelennor Fields was a masterclass in siegecraft. And everything oh, yeah. they brought and everything they brought with them to Pelennor Fields had a purpose. Um the battering ram, you know, the um the like, towers, you knew, the catapults. Right. You knew when they when they staged this army and they put this army together what the purpose was. The purpose was the siege of the White Tower, Gondor. Um minister uh, the problem with the Battle of Five Armies, as near as I can tell, is Azov doesn't know that they're going to be fighting in Dale. The, I mean, the, 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 there's, and, and what siege of Erebor was supposed to happen here? As far as they knew, there were 13 dwarves holding that place up. So it, it should have been pretty much march to the gate, knock, down the, knock the gate down, and kill anything that moves. This is my problem with, with that. I don't... In the book, it's more of everyone's rushing uh, for the gold hoard. In the movie, it's oh, we, you know, we're 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 trying to you know take this over for its position. This is the beginning of Sauron's march across Middle Earth and everything. And I don't get the sense that they ever knew that the men or the elves were even going to be there. They cert- no one knew D- uh, Dane was going to show up with with, with the with the Iron Hills army. So I just. It's a confusing mess, basically. So I don't. So it's like when they put together when Azar puts together his army and he call, and Bolg puts together the army from Gundabad. I'm not entirely sure even the orcs knew what their purpose was, other than you know march into Erebor. That was it. That was the mission objective. But I don't I'll, know if they if it ever really established what it was they thought they were supposed to be fighting. I'll take you as far as that, but I mean, you know, they brought the they brought the sandworms from Dune. They brought the uh, the catapults that are mounted on top of the trolls. Like they brought siege stuff to it, and it it just it came off. I, you know, it, it should have come off as a more ragtag group, and it should have been, you know, less formations, more of a bit of a gaggle, more more varied as well. Like I felt. I felt this army was very uniform in the kinds of character design it had, as opposed to like Pelennor Fields, which is like short orcs, tall orcs, ugly orcs, more ugly orcs, cancerous orcs. <laughs> orcs with red hair, or, you know. Um, well, I will tell you, if the idea is to get into Erebor, then bringing sea, then bringing sea traps up with them would have made sense. Yeah, um, but. But 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 the but the fact that they split the army and then go into Dale made no sense to me because how did how did the orcs know that men were going to be filing into Dale? They should have all been dead from Smog's attack for all they knew, which is not there to begin with. Hollywood has an obsession with civilians right now, whether it be killing them all in the Man of Steel, saving them all in the Avengers, or doing whatever the hell they decide to do in the five armies. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like I. 
as as far as I remember, and you've read the book uh, more recently than I have, the Battle of the Five Armies is just you know about a, a skirmish that takes place outside of the halls of Erebor. They exactly. don't go into Dale. It's, they, a, they it's a, a, what you call a pitch battle. It's a bunch yeah. of armies pull up. They all fight. That's it. Right. And so Peter Jackson really turned this thing into. It, used to, it, it starts to fall apart the more questions you ask. Like again. How did you know they were going to be humans, and why are you going into Dale after them? How did you know that there were going to be elves there? You know, yeah. it's, that's what I mean. Like, the, the, the way that it's staged, like, it looks okay, it's a little chaotic, and it seems like, despite the fact that they're outnumbered about three to one, uh, mm-hmm. amazingly, the orcs have no ability to fight. <laughs> so they, the elves cut them like butter. You know, Dane... Um, I'm getting his name right. The uh, the the Iron Hills uh, dwarf smashes everything that moves with you know with little to no problem. Like you, yeah, you, would, you know, yeah. Billy Connolly. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, despite the fact that they that they ceased production for a year and they sent the second unit home, whatever. I still don't think that Peter Jackson had a clear vision of what he wanted the Battle of the Five Armies to be, or if he did, he did a very poor job of getting the audience there. It's just like, you know, like we know we have to have a battle, so let's make it this really epic thing. But it starts off, it's, it's like an hourglass. It starts out really wide and expansive, and then it just centers on Azog cutting through Keely, Feely, and then Thorin. And then Legolas is... Uh, and then Legolas's fucking scaffold match with Bulg. Oh yeah, it's it's all over the place. And I mean, um, do you guys mind if I get into the whole fight choreography for the end duel stuff really quick? Go ahead. Or uh, as quick as I can. This is going to get ranty very quickly. Um, again, this goes back to my whole theory of you see great stuff, you see stupid stuff. Like, you know, um, they've got the scene. Well, actually, here I'll start with the most logical one first. So the whole battle's going on. Thorin regains his, his his sanity. He says, "Okay, let's go help everybody. What are we gonna do first? Let's take off all of our plate armor." <laughs> There's nobody out there with stuff. There's, no, it makes no sense. Like, come on, battle about black gates. Everyone puts on more armor because they know it's gonna be a huge fight. And instead, Feely, Keely, and Thorin all decide to take off their armor at the same time. And I'll skip some of the stuff with the rams and the and the chariot scene, which is really cool. The holy crap is a gory. And then just get to the fight at the top. So, again, things keep on going back and forth between awesome and ridiculous. Just focusing on kind of um, Thorin versus Azog. You know, you set up the scene, he has a quick fight with them, and then the orcs keep coming. Thorin breaks his sword, and then he gets into this really great sequence of, you know, how would you deal if you only had a broken sword end, and there's guys coming at you with full-size swords. You know, you're stepping offline. You're stepping inside their range and, and finding the gaps in the armor. And then he has the big face-off with Azog. He gets Orcris back from, from Legolas, and they, they have this duel, and half the duel, I swear to God, Thorin's just bouncing his sword off of um, Azog's plate armor. And the guy's standing there, bare legs, bare arms, and as we've already established, people in this universe know how to fight dirty. So, And you're shorter than him, so it's like all you need to do is take him off the knees and, and there's your fight made much easier right there. 
And of course, they go through the the whole bit with the um, the whole bit with the um, being on the ice and breaking the ice and him stepping off and letting Azog fall, which I thought was actually really clever. But then they they have the whole ending sequence, and I mean, I I don't know the physical composition of or, of orcs, but I'm pretty sure that when you put an orc in plate armor, he's going to sink to the bottom of the river. <laughs> he's not going to float there just under the ice. That being said, also, ice thick enough, strong enough for you to stand on is a couple of feet thick. So he's not going to just be able to bust through and pull himself out, no problem. And we're not even addressing hypothermia. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And then he has to do that sort of, you know, Jason lives horror thing where he stabs him in the foot from under the ice. But by the way, as I'm watching that again yesterday, I'm like, I, you know, I had one of those, you know, people in in the theater yelling at the uh, yelling at the guy to get away from the horror monster. Like, don't just stand there, stupid! Like, you know, he's floating towards you. You don't. You clearly don't think he's really dead. Move, for God's sake! Yeah, exactly. And he should have sunk to the bottom. Like, I mean, plate armor isn't ridiculously heavy. He probably had forty pounds worth of armor, but that's enough to to drag you to the bottom of the river. Right. And then of yeah. Course, it, Doing silly stuff like hanging upside upside down from a bat and just sticking his arm out arms out and cutting the heads off fifty orcs. <laughs> like again, it's either great or it's what the hell are you thinking? It, there's no middle ground here, and it's so frustrating. I think we should submit that to the army and say let's have our soldiers hang upside down from drones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, you guys. I'm gonna stop my rant for the time being. <laughs> uh, okay, we haven't. Uh, if if, if, if the, the the battle of the five armies, like I said, is just a big giant mess. Um, like if you shut your brain off long enough, it's visually stimulating. But if you start to if you start to think about it too long, or you ask too many questions, it's like, wait a minute, you, we you, we've lost the plot here. Um, so the only thing really left to talk about is the other side of the story, which is Thorin's rise and fall of his sanity. Um, I mean, Richard Armitage gives a tour de force performance. He does well with what he's given to work with. I think my issue with him coming, uh, coming around is he regains his sanity because the plot said so. And I don't know if there was a trigger event present. I mean, Dwalin twice talks into him. He threatens to kill Dwalin. He's wandering around on on the floor made of gold, you know, from after the smog bit, and he basically just has, you know, this, uh, you know, voices are talking to him, and when he comes out of it, he throws the crown, and actually he throws all of his plate armor and says, sorry, I fucked up, and, you know, and then they go lead the charge. But dramatically... I didn't see a trigger event that would have brought him to that point. There's no sense of him, you know, and then it's so funny because Keeley after that, like, I'm not going to stand here and let our friends fight for us. Meanwhile, he's like, yeah, I came to tell you we're going to go fight. It's okay. Relax. Like, that was a really misplaced line. That's, that's a line that should have happened 10 minutes before where I'm not going to let here and let our friends go fuck yourself, Keeley. You know, that, that, that sort of thing. They, they just, they didn't feel, for all of these people that are in his life that are so important to him, none of him, none of them were so important 
that they brought him out of it. I just, I, I just sat there wondering, you know, the entire the entire time, like, so he just got over this. He got over dragon sickness. That's it. That's our story. Like, dramatically, I, I just felt like it was a bit shallow. Sean, um, I'm going to let you sort of jump in here and give your thoughts on that. Just really, really quickly, Thorin's uh, sanity rise and fall. I thought it was shallow. What did you think? Oh, I think once more it was a waste of what a, a great performance with the ill-conceived writing. I think you you summed it up pretty beautifully. You've both done so much more with having things to say about these movies than I did. But, <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of those things that's a fact of life in a lot of movies. If you put the right person in the right role, and that person can actually save something that's really creatively lackluster, or at least spare it from being as bad as it could have been. Um, To give some kind of lesser examples, um, okay, one of my personal favorites, uh, Colin Farrell in Daredevil. Um, Just, he's given a lousy script, bad story, just ill-conceived fuckery going on all around him. But God damn it, he's just determined to have him such a good fucking time. Um, Lee costume. That, um, that he kind of ends up just stealing every single scene and really helping to make the movie. That's kind of the way it is. Armitage is, you know, as you point, pointed out, plot says so. Nothing really properly developed, properly developed there, but damn it, he just he just throws it right into high gear the entire time, and he's one of those guys that you know, much like bubbly cuddlepuss, manages to just do so much with sometimes so little that you almost feel like you can make yourself sit through the movie just for those two. Um, it's just... And, and and that speaks to kind of what's wrong with the whole trilogy is, you know, if this had been somebody's first set of movies, you could almost forgive it if they had come before The Lord of the Rings. But on the other hand, you've got these three movies that just make you want to yell at Jackson, you know better! You proven you know better. What are you doing? I mean, I made the comparison to George Lucas earlier. Uh, no, the problem was, now looking back, we realize that almost everything right that George Lucas ever did, somebody else was responsible for. We have to look back and wonder how much of that was really was really you, buddy. Um, in this case... In this case, it, it was the same people who all worked on it, and in most cases, a lot of those people come through once more. Howard Shore's score is excellent. Um, Ian McKellen, superb. Christopher Lee, when he shows up, excellent. Orlando Bloom, you feel forced, but, you know, go, go, Hobbit Rangers. Um even that's moderately entertaining. Uh, thank God the rumors proved untrue that they tried that they were trying to shove Aragorn in a ham-fisted manner into this. 
but it's just mystifying to see somebody who should really know what he's doing with this material just go so wrong for three straight movies in such a fashion that the first movie is the best of the bunch, the second is a great big old hot mess, but at least it's a fun-to-look-at hot mess, and then you've got a third movie that somehow manages to fall somewhere between the two. <laughs> um, so it's not diminishing returns, it's diminishing and half-ass bouncing returns. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, 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 it's like it's it's like dropping a half infl- a half inflated basketball off a roof. <laughs> um, we mentioned him before, so I would be remiss without bringing this up. And <clears throat> we have uh, we have about fifteen minutes of live time left, so these are going to be some real quick hits here. Uh, two things: one, Alfred. Again, if you need to cut something. <laughs> character. Kill him in the first five minutes of this thing. Have a town tear him apart. Um, just, did we really need this idiot of a character who who has no arc, never gets anywhere. He only gets worse as things go, as, as the movie goes forward. And then you don't even get the satisfaction of seeing him die in the, in the theatrical cut. You do in the extended cut, and it's stupid. But I was like, I don't understand Peter Jackson's choice of having a C-3PO character that is loathsome. Like, why? Answer, thoughts there? Uh, Recastment is <laughs> Yeah, there's not much more. I mean, Alfred just... He's grating, and I hate to say that. Like, I mean, he's probably the only real miscast in the entire movie in terms of... Or misuse of a character in, in the entire movie of just somebody who didn't quite fit. And, you know, again, it's, it's comic relief for five minutes, but... Constantly going back to him being a sissy, just it doesn't work. Yeah, and a bully, you know. He calls Frodo and get at one point. Get up, you lazy git. Of course, he's gone by then. Um, I I, I want to address it just so in case anyone's listening to this, they're like, you talk about this. Uh, saving Gandalf at Dogodor, Um You have the. Uh, you have Hugo Weaving and, and and God bless him, Christopher Lee, whirling and twirling about, knocking out ghosts. I, I want Andrew to sort of talk to me about this because I'm not sure how I feel about the Nazgul t- being taken out like that, only to reappear as a menace later on. Just seems odd to me. But overall, I think what saves that entire sequence is Kate Blanchett. I think for whatever silly nonsense is going on with with, uh, with Hugo Weaving and, and Christopher, poor Christopher Lee, poor 90-year-old Christopher Lee twirling a bat around, or at least a stuntable was, um, her performance is so good, and what they do with her is so good that, like, okay, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm good with, I'm good with all of this. And obviously it sets up, the, you know, it, it, it punts Sauron, literally, Sixty years back, you know, as she as she sends him to Mordor, which is fine in the narrative. It, you know, at least it resolved that storyline and everything, and the, the sequence in and of, in of itself lies firmly on her shoulders, and it's fine there. Um, but I, I just I struggle with them taking the uh, what was supposed to be, you know 
Sauron's Sauron's big heavies and sort of reducing them to, you know, a uh you know, Batman villains. And I mean from the sixties show. Every time they every time one of them got hit, I kept waiting for Ban Kapow to come up. So Let's quick hit the, the rescue of Dog, the rescue of Gandalf at Dog Door, and then I think um, we can wrap things up here. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I think I'm pretty much on the same page as you, Mark. Um, I thought the scene was, you know, again, it was a bit of, a bit of a confectionery, if you want to use that term. But the part of the Galadriel, especially when she does her big light show and kind of punts everybody halfway through Middle Earth, I think if anything that it gives more strength to that same scene where she shows that off in in the fellowship because she does that light show and there's really no context to it to be able to say, okay, she can turn herself blue and lower lower her voice and make it booming, but what can she actually do? After she does that, it's like, okay, holy shit. If she had taken the ring, this could have been really bad news. Right. My other, my other comment on that scene is that if you're going to do this scene... you to perform magic. Oh, exactly. My other comment on that scene is if you're going to have Sauron show up and if you're going to have the Nine show up and if you're going to drop the line from Christopher Lee saying, I will take care of Sauron, I want that scene where he turns evil. Yeah, agreed. I, I'm glad you mentioned it because I've been thinking it and I, I just forgot I hate the fact that it's left in it's just left out there like like a dirty egg smelling fart. You know, and you're like, "Okay, well, what 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 happened?" Because yeah. the next thing and, you'll see cuz by the time you you catch up with that character again, he's done left the good side and said, "Nope, I, I give up. I'm going forces with the evil guy." Well, I mean, it's, it's Chekhov's wizard staff. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of that. You know, we talked about it at the, at the top of this discussion with Gundabad, where there's yep. just all kinds of things being thrown out there and no payoffs. Yeah. I, and that, I feel like stuff that should have been paid off more in the extended cut, and compared to the other movies where all the extended cut stuff was more more character pieces, more story, and stuff like that that you all need, the Five Armies felt like it was all action sequences. Like yeah. there was there's one additional scene that was establishing Thorin's badness where he had that line where he repeated pieces of pieces of aid and, and they did a little bit of a, a voice modulation to sound make him sound like Smaug and and stuff like that. Otherwise it's the fight between the elves and the dwarves, which I didn't like all that much, even from a thematic point of view. It was the big chariot chase, which okay, it was a cool visual, but Again, relative to the rest of the movie, rest of those movies, that's a pretty damn gory scene. And then, yeah, just more them pulling the axe out of the one guy's head, and yeah, just a lot of action that didn't seem to add a lot to the overall film. All right, Sean. Any burning desires here on the Battle of the Five Armies, or really anything left unsaid about this entire trilogy? <clears throat> No, I really think we're getting to that part of the show where we've pretty much said everything about Peter Jackson and Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and everything else that I that I think we're going to say, except that, you know, 
it's disappointing when you go from a first movie that spent so much appropriate time on character development and really investing you in these people that you're going to be with for three movies straight. And then you go from that right into basically two movies of sideshow and spectacle with really very little else. It's like they listened to everybody else who was so mad about the first one of the three movies. Why so much talking? Why so much dialogue? Get to the swords and the elves and the orcs and the bows and the flippy and the nin and the ninjas and the action and the wee and the and the gotham. And then lo and behold, unfortunately, just like just like New Line does so often, New Line listened to exactly the wrong audience members. And so we end up with two movies of thrown together spectacle that waste perfectly good performances and unfortunately again just leaves me mystified at Peter Jackson going, You know better. Why? Why you do this? So I want that's about that's about it. My only my, my only other suggestion would be if you're going to choose to watch all six movies. First off, I envy you that much disposable time. Um, but second, by all means, go and watch the three Hobbit movies first. Not just because sequential order, but because. It's going to be a huge letdown if you go and watch Fellowship, Two Towers, and Return of the Ring, and then you realize, oh, fuck, Hobbit. No. It's, it's the best thing I can compare it to. It's like if you go and try to play the Batman Arkham games in release order. Um, you're going to play Asylum. Asylum is excellent. You're going to play Arkham City. City is fucking amazing. Then you're going to go play Origins and you're going to wonder, dear God, what happened? <laughs> hell, you know? It wasn't that bad. <laughs> no, but come on. It's, it, it definitely was the wrong way on the arc. It, it was... The, the way I like to look at it is when it comes to... When it comes to Origins compared... Is you take City and City was made by Rocksteady, who also made Asylum. And Origins was made by Warner Brothers Montreal, and they did the best they did the best they could to ape Arkham City. And then with Arkham Knight, Rocksteady came, Rocksteady came back and said, "Oh look, it's adorable. They think they're people. That's cute. Step aside. Let me show you how it's done." And we got uh, Arkham Knight for it. Definitely um, yes, Batmobile no. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the general point being, you play Origins first, not just because it comes first in the story, even though it was the third game released, but because you can play it and then look ahead and go, hey, chin up. I got three better games in front of me. Um, Andrew, give your uh, your final thoughts on this, and then I kind of want to... If there's time and then the area is definitely fleeting. Uh, just talk about the, the the what if. What if it had been two movies? But go ahead and give me your final thoughts. Um, I mean, I think we've we've just about covered it. Um, I mean, again, it's like 
it's the scene between it's the spectrum between great and what the hell. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about it, but I think you know the scene unto itself when when Thorin gets his 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 sanity back is is genius and everything around it doesn't quite connect. And that seems to be what this trilogy is missing is just connective tissue. Um, a couple of things I will say positive. I mean, we've said it. Howard Shore's score is amazing. I loved all three of the songs that kind of accompany the movies. Um, and uh, I think I think we've just about covered it. If you're looking for a good kind of non-extra Lord of the Rings property to, to check out that's a little more together than this, Shadow of Mordor is amazing. So real quick, here's my final thought. Um, I like the extended versions. I don't think I'll ever watch the theatrical versions ever again because the extended versions make the theatrical versions so much better. On the other hand, I've been thinking a lot about how this could have been two movies. And I, and I don't know what was going on politically um, when Peter Jackson took this over, why he didn't say to Warner Brothers, why he didn't say to New Line, um, I want the year and a half to go back and do this right. That, you know, if I'm taking this over from Guillermo, who was making a completely different movie, you need to give me the same time and respect that he got and let's move the timetable. Um, just taking kind of what we have and sort of fan editing in my head, you, you can absolutely take The Desolation of Smog and the Battle of Five Armies and condense it to one three-hour movie. Uh, we talked a little bit about some of those things. For fuck's sake, get to the woodland realm quickly. You know, do the spiders very quickly. Um, cut out all the stuff with Keeley and Toriel. Uh, get them into the river. Get, make the river thing happen. I mean, they, they should basically get to, get to Lake Town in the first 30 minutes of that movie. Um, cut the Lake Town stuff in half. You know, you don't need all of it. You need some of it, but not all of it. You definitely need to establish Bard uh, in, the, in his history. And you need to somewhat establish the fact that the master of the town is greedy. But that's it. We don't need to overdo it with, I'll never stand for elections and all that other stuff. Cut that about in half. And then, um, you know, then, then get to the dragon. If you want to do that end sequence the way it is, that's fine. But you've got you to gotta get there, A, a little bit quicker. B, you've got to end it faster. Um, and then again, you know, you cut cut out. I mean, once you get again to the Battle of the Five Armies, uh, it's it's really easy to take out like the Gundabad scene and take take certain things out of it so that you can get the rest of the movie going and getting and get it to a you know a decent runtime. It's absolutely possible. Um, that's the one negative thing I, I want to say about this is that unlike Lord of the Rings, where people are like oh there's a little too much filler. No, that movie, those movies were pretty much spot on in terms of what needed to be there. Whereas The Hobbit, it's, it's very readily apparent how much filler there was in order to get to three movies. And that's and because it was never meant to be three movies. So that's it. Those are my final thoughts on The Hobbit as we close out our live time here. We're going to spend just a few minutes, just a few minutes, just a few minutes saying our goodbyes and plugs and then uh, we'll see you in a week. We are doing another show. One week from tonight, we'll be looking at uh, the Shaft Trilogy, because it's Black History Month here at the Rattles and Broadcasting Network. So 
I want to first go ahead and thank Andrew for coming on. Andrew, where can people uh, find you, uh, any projects you're working on, any podcasts you're appearing on, um, any, uh, any final goodbyes you would like to uh, share with us? Well, uh, first off, guys, I want to thank you very much for having me on. I've been uh, been a fan for a long time, and I had a blast doing these two podcasts with you and uh, and just really appreciate the opportunity. Um, as far as plugs go, uh, I train at Havoc JKD in Calgary. Um, that can be reached on, on Facebook and at calgaryjkd.com. Uh, that is under the absolutely phenomenal Sifu J. Cooper, who's a very good friend of mine, very experienced martial artist and, and law enforcement officer, and uh, brings a great deal of real-world experience to a, a very quality uh, learning environment at, at Havoc. Um, that's a part of the uh, Jeet Kune Do Athletic Association under the uh, absolutely amazing uh, Sifu Harinder Singh Sabarwal. And that can be found at uh, again on Facebook or at uh, jkdaa.com. Um, and again, another great variety of, of JKD organizations. If you're looking for one in your local area, please go check that out. Uh, finally, on a personal note, I want to uh, wish my dad a, a very happy 62nd birthday. Uh, Dad, love you very much, and uh, thank you for uh, doing stuff like you know taking me to Return of the Jedi at four weeks old, and and always challenging me to see movies like Lord of the Rings, like Inception, like all these big, wonderful, crazy, not always perfect sci-fi and fantasy movies that that are so amazing. And and uh, I think I'll just leave it at that. But thank you very much, guys. Love having you here, Sean. Thank you, Andrew, for coming on. You were very awesome, and you are welcome back absolutely any time. Thank you, everybody who listened, either live or downloaded the show. And also watch out for The Power of Three with myself, Jeremy Holthoff, and Ann Alberti coming in early March. Mark. <laughs> that was perfect. Uh, as I said, next week, 9 o'clock, myself and Sean will be reviewing the three sh- Shaft movies from the 70s. It's going to be a fun time had by all. Um, Metal Hammer of Doom, we've got our review of Megadeth's Dystopia in the archives uh, on, the, uh, on the movie review side of things. Myself and Robert Winfrey just reviewed Kung Fu Panda. Uh, coming up in the near future, we've got Pride, Predators, and Zombies next Wednesday, the day before we do Shaft. Uh, the following week, the 17th, we'll be reviewing Deadpool, and Metal Hammer of Doom will be back. Uh, we'll be looking at Avantasia's Ghost Lights. No movie review on the 24th because what's coming out the weekend prior sucks. But Long Road to Ruin will be back. We'll be reviewing the Beverly Hills Cop trilogy. So that's all for now. Um, I want to thank uh, Andrew again for coming on the show. Sean, you were great as always. And uh, to everyone else, be well, be safe, and behave.